everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Universe Within podcast. This episode of the show is being sponsored by the Amazonian Plant Healing Center, the Temple of the Way of Light. I've worked there for probably about the past decade now, and I can really attest to the, the quality and the beauty of the work they do. Uh, they work in the Shipibo lineage, uh, which is a group of people from the Peruvian Amazon, uh, predominantly working with ayahuasca, which is considered a, a sacred plant medicine. And they run 12-day workshops, working with six ceremonies, uh, four different healers or doctors, uh, two to three facilitators, which are like the bridges uh, between the, the the local healers and the guests that come down. Um, they have a pre-ceremony yoga class. They work with a massage person, herbalists, and uh, just in general, a really amazing support staff, which creates a, a space and an environment which is really conducive to going really deeply into this work and to to really gain whatever it is that one is coming down to work on, whether that's uh, knowledge, insight, wisdom, healing, uh, finding one's place in life, uh, specific medical, medical conditions, uh, really whatever that journey is. So uh, it's a really beautiful place to go very deeply into this work. The temple has unfortunately been closed since March of 2020 due to the worldwide pandemic. Um, uh, they were originally scheduled to reopen in June of this year, uh, but that's been pushed back a couple months, and now they're scheduled to reopen in August. So if you'd like more information about them, you can check them out on their website, templetheawayoflight.org, uh, and I'll also put a link in the show notes. And then this episode is also being sponsored by Ecstatic Dance Online, uh, which is run by my friend Raphael. Um, and it was co-founded by him and his partner, Elena. Um, and it's a, an online transformational dance experience brought to you through the magic of Zoom. In one hour, 45 minutes, you'll receive a short but potent opening ceremony, followed by an hour of an ecstasy-inducing, expertly crafted DJ set, finishing with a closing integration and friendly open space for community and sharing. Each week, the dance ceremony takes on a new and interesting theme. They bring in a variety of guest DJs from around the world. You will hear all different genres of music and an exciting tempo to stoke your inner alchemical fire. Um, Raphael is a certified ecstatic dance DJ from Canada who's a dancer himself. He focuses on the importance of the inner work, on processing emotions and feelings, and guides the healing process with his music. And Elena is a passionate dancer and a true nomad. She brings her vast ecstatic dance experience, love of life, and skills as a certified dance movement therapist to the opening and closing setting. Um, Raphael's a really good friend of mine, and uh, I, I think he holds a really beautiful space. So if you're interested in that, you can check out their website, and I will have a link uh, to that in the show notes as well. Um, and then finally, uh, my colleague and friend, Marav Artsy, who I interviewed, I believe it was episode 28 of the podcast. We're continuing to hold dietas uh, here in the Sacred Valley of Peru. And the dieta is one of the traditional processes in which people work with one plant and really going deeply into the process uh, through that plant of, of learning and, and healing um, and really on a very personal and experiential level, experiencing the benefit of uh, what these plant traditions have to offer. 
Um, we just finished a diet in March. We'll be holding our next one in a few weeks in May, and then we'll be doing another one in September. Uh, and we're also probably coming to the States in August, although that's still uh, undecided. But if you'd like more information on that, you can check out my website at nicotianarustica.org and Marav's site at tobaccodiets.com. There'll be a link to both of those in the show notes. Today's guest is uh, my friend Publio. Uh, Publio is a, a dear friend of mine. We met working at the uh, Amazonian Plant Healing Center, the Temple of the Way of Light. He originally came down, uh, I believe, as a teacher of yoga, meditation, um, breath practices, mindfulness. Uh, he also started facilitating ceremonies there facilitating group retreats, uh, and he's uh, become a manager there also uh, at times. And uh, he's just a really beautiful human being, and we got into some really interesting topics, uh, yoga, Buddhism, uh, plant work, uh, talking about his work and experience working with Shipibo and the Santo Daimi traditions, um, and just some about life in general and what all these traditions are pointing towards. So uh, I think it was a really beautiful episode. He's a, a very wise man, and I, I think you'll get a, a lot of um, hopefully beautiful information out of this podcast. Um, as always, if you're able to support this podcast, that's a really big help to me. Um, I know there's so much content online, it can become overwhelming, and we're kind of really accustomed to, to, to seeing so many things and free content. Um, with these things, uh, they do take effort and work. So if you're able to support financially, that's a really big help. Uh, Patreon is a really good way of doing that. It's a really nice service in that you can subscribe to different tiers for as little as a dollar a month you can subscribe. And with that, you get some uh, nice things back in return. Um, early access to shows, Q&As, bonus material. Um, so that's a really big support. There's also the option of donating directly via PayPal, and there'll be a link to both of those in the show notes. If you're not able to do that, simply subscribing to the show is a big help. That really helps with the algorithms, the YouTube version, uh, subscribing to the show, turning on the notification bell, liking the video, and then with the audio version going on Apple Podcasts, uh, subscribing to the show, and leaving a starred rating and a short review. I always get those two confused, rating and review. But a starred rating and a short review is a really big help. Uh, so to all the people who have done that, thank you very much. To all the Patreon supporters, thank you very much. I deeply appreciate it. And without further ado, here is my interview conversation with Publio. Well, it looks like we're recording. Well, Polia, welcome. It's it's uh, it's really good to see you, my friend. We um, we've known each other. I don't know for for a long time now, a number of years. We we met working together at the the Amazonian Plant Healing Center, the Temple of the Way of Light. Um, 
I, I think when you arrived, I was actually kind of either in or finishing a process, a long process of dieta. And then I came back and I think you were gone and then you came back later. And, and that's where we eventually crossed paths. But I, I don't know, but I'm guessing it's probably been six years now, something like that. It's kind of a I don't know. I'm just throwing that number out there, but that, that seems more or less right. Um, but maybe maybe to start, uh, just uh, telling the audience a little bit about who you are, your background. Uh, when when I first met you, you were you were very involved in yoga and, and teaching yoga, facilitating uh, workshops at the temple. So maybe a bit about your background, who you are, where you're from, what got you interested in, in yoga and plant medicines and, and kind of the, the journey that, that led you to, to that point. Yes, uh, Jason, first of all, thank you so much for having me here. It's, it's a joy to share this space with you. And uh, yeah, I think we met around six years ago, exactly. You were out of the temple for your own process. And then when you came back, I remember when you were getting acquainted again with the facilitation at the temple, it was Alain and myself and you. It was the three of us facilitating a retreat. That's when we connected deeper, yeah, around six years ago. Well, that's a big question. You know, who am I? <laughs> the essential question. <laughs> um, well, in a more simple way, I'm from Brazil. I've been working with, with ayahuasca uh, for about 15 years now. I started in the, in the Amazon jungle in Pucallpa. And uh, with the experiences I had there, it took me to Asia. Uh, to to investigate deeper in first person the experiences I had there. So I studied um, meditation in several traditions in Asia, uh, in India, in Thailand, in Burma, um, in Indonesia. And uh, I've also done uh, what they call post-graduation. I have a degree in yoga therapy from a yoga university in the south of India in in Bangalore. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> a little bit a technical presentation of who I am. I do many things. Uh, I work, uh, my work, I see that the expression of my work uh, goes in, in many different directions. I've been, I've been offering online yoga integration sessions. I have uh, uh, an online yoga instructor's course here in Brazil that is happening since the beginning of last year. Um, I also offer one-on-one integration sessions. That is a work that I love doing. I love being with people in their processes and sharing that space with them. Um, what else? I'm a facilitator at the temple. I love singing. <laughs> so many other things. Yeah. So maybe maybe we start with um, with yoga <clears throat> because I I know that's that's a big part of your life. So you're a young boy growing up in Brazil, <laughs> and and at some point, uh, how how did that start? Was that something you you came across through books or teachings? And and then what uh, you know was that something you you began studying in Brazil? Because I, I know eventually you 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 ended up in India for for a number of years. Um, what was that process like for you? Okay, good question, Jay. Um, 
somehow yoga was always surrounding me, even here in this small town where I grew up. Uh, there is a family that brought yoga to the city, and uh, they were friends with my family, so I was always hearing about that. They, they were very much connected with the spiritual path of yoga, not only the, the physical practices. So yoga was always around me. But my first actual yoga class I took in Brasilia, where was where I was studying. Now I was doing my my graduation in international relations. That is a whole other chapter of my life, and uh, and there I I had my first yoga class. That it was in um, in a in a tradition that was developed here in Brazil, and uh, that that touched me deeply. And uh, it was a very meditative uh, meditative. Uh, lineage of yoga and I saw that that really helped me to deal with anxiety and some worries I was going through at the time um, but I would say that my real interest to yoga flourished after my first ayahuasca ceremony in Pucallpa uh, that was when I said okay uh, I see that from the little I understand about yoga, I see that what I've experienced here in these few days with this shaman, uh, I see that yoga can help me to describe better or to make a better sense of it or to put it into a, into words. You know? that, so that was my, my intuition when, when I had a deep transformative ceremonies, those deep transformative ceremonies in, in Pucallpa. I, I knew somehow that um, what, I, what I lived in those, in those ceremonies, in those moments, had a description of some sort. I could, there was, there was a, some, some explanation. And I intuitively I, I felt that it was somewhere in Asia so that's why I went to India you know, to to find <laughs> a better explanation to those phenomena that I've, I've that I've seen and uh, it really helped uh, I, that's my perception I see that here in, in the Amazon you know, in with the shamans here in the Amazon, in our tradition, um, they have a direct experience of this reality, of this kind of awakening and healing or deeper connection with ourselves. They, they, they have the tools, they have the materials, the substances to help us to experience that. But for some reason, the, the indigenous in the Amazon, they don't have the tradition of writing it down or trying to, to describe it in a more um, academic way or finding a terminology to specific things. And I see that this is a, a speciality of, of India you know, with all this immense collection of scriptures trying to describe reality, trying to describe the mind, trying to uh, somehow explain what is <laughs> what is this thing of being alive? You no, know, what is what is this that we are experiencing in this human body? 
so it was a fascinating journey of integration to me. I spent around five years in in Asia in total, and uh, I I dare to say that I've yeah I had a glimpse of of what I I was really looking for there. I feel I feel I was very blessed and and uh, that I could connect very deeply with the traditions there that are now the foundation of my work. Yeah. So how did you, <clears throat> that's interesting. I, I didn't know that. So you're, you're in Brazil and then you found yourself in Pucallpa. How, how did, how did that come about? Was that something you had, you had heard of, uh, I'm assuming the Shipibo working there. What, what led you to, to, to go there? Cause even though it's, you know, if someone looks at a map, they would say, oh, well, that's relatively close, but that's, that's not an easy journey from where you were in Brazil, actually, to, to getting to Pucallpa, which is in, yeah, Peru, that... in, in Peru. Pucallpa is a, one of the, the main cities in the Peruvian Amazon, for, for anyone who doesn't know that. Yes, that's <laughs> so, well, that's a long story. I'll try to summarize, but <laughs> what happened? I was... I was studying international relations at that time, and uh, I have this—I I had this romantic um, dream about international relations. So I was studying in the University of Brasilia, that at the time was considered one of the best institutions for the studies of international relations in Latin America. And uh, in my dreams, I thought that I would go there and I would study. Uh, something that would help me to understand why there is no peace in this planet. So what are the possible solutions for conflict? What, what can really help the world and people to feel better? <laughs> and uh, I was very disheartened when I quickly understood that it was a very bureaucratic um, uh, field of study and that the, the, the main solutions were all about economical development and uh, how to make countries to progress in a, in a material way and uh, how basically that was the model. You know, if, if every family uh, in the world lives as uh, a medium class American family, that, that's the goal. <laughs> Uh, and uh, I said, all right, I was around 18, 19 at that time. I said, all right, that doesn't, <laughs> okay, I respect that, but that doesn't, doesn't catch my heart. That doesn't convince my heart. So it was, a, it was a very difficult process. And then in the third semester of the university, I was very um, not motivated. I was just really getting to that rebel <laughs> attitude and... And then one teacher, one of my teachers at the time, she was this beautiful lady from Chile. Uh, I'm so grateful to her. Her name is Angelica, by the way. That means angel, no? Uh, she was this very um, feisty Latin woman with a red hair and uh, passionate about everything and uh, Latin American literature and Gabriel Garcia Marquez and all this uh, fantastic world that I love. In Latin America. And she said, Fulvio, why don't you stop all that you're doing here? And why you don't simply go to my mother's house in Santiago, in Chile, and just give yourself a break to really understand better 
things about your life, the directions you want to take. And, uh, and that was so special for me because from all my teachers and from all people around me at that time, I really perceived that she was sensitive enough to, to, to see my need at that moment, to see the, the confusion and the pain that I was going through. And uh, intuitively, she knew that I needed that space. And she looked and at the time, I remember that, at the time she looked at me and she said, Publio, I don't know you very well, but I think you're a good boy. <laughs> so please go and be very kind to my mother. <laughs> so then I decided to go to her house, not to her mother's house, Coquita. And uh, that's what I see. It was my first retreat, informal retreat. But it was this cozy little house, far from everything, with uh, the Andean Plateau of La Cordillera right in front of, of the gate of the house that we could see. And it was cold. It was, it, I felt like in a womb. And Coquita, her mother, was super kind. He was like the archetype of the grandmother. And, uh, and in that moment, I, I, I saw that I had more and more space to investigate deeper what, my, what were my, my soul's yearning. Now, what was that that was really missing? What was that that I was really looking for? Now, and, uh, and I decided to give, to give space to that even more. And so it was when, it was when I was in, in Chile, in Santiago, I bought a magazine. And in that magazine, I think it's called Cunhamu. I think that magazine is still exists in Chile. And in that magazine, there was an interview from a Spanish uh, uh, journalist with a shaman uh, in Pucallpa, uh, answering to your question, how did I get to Pucallpa, no? Um, so I read that interview. I, I remember that I had heard of ayahuasca here in Brazil once in a science magazine, really in passant, just a little quote about Santo Daime, but I never considered really exploring uh, this path. But when I read that in the context that I was in, the, in this adventure, romantic mode, I said, okay, I'm going to Pucallpa. <laughs> and uh, I ended up writing to that maestro, his name is Roger Suipino. He's family with Inez, I found out years later from Inez Lopez and the Lopez family. And, uh, and yeah, I took this long land trip you know, from, from Santiago to Lima and then from Lima to Pucallpa on a bus. <laughs> and uh, I was finally there with, with Cipino. So the... The connection with ayahuasca came from this very jovial, you know, young, this young part of myself in, in really trying to find some more answers and really trying to first to, to find a way to, um, what is the word in English? To, it's not criticized, but to question, to question the status quo. 
in which I was living, which I see that is the, the normal path for most of us that starts working with this. I wasn't at all satisfied with the possibilities that life, like modern life, was offering me. And somehow I had a feeling that there was something beyond that. And uh, in those ceremonies with Roger, that was like, okay, this is the proof. <laughs> Boy, you're right. There's something much beyond this. <laughs> Here's your golden ticket <laughs> to this journey that has no way back. <laughs> and just to complete the story, I ended up coming back to Brasilia, of course, with a completely different uh, perception of reality. I, I ended up finishing uh, my, my graduation in international relations uh, it was was very difficult because then then I had the material to <laughs> to question everything, <laughs> the concrete material to question my professors and uh, and uh, so I was known <laughs> between my colleagues. Um, it's a very formal context, you no? Know, it's kind of a business university or something. So I was known uh, between my colleagues as. Uh, the boy that went traveling and never came back. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's a little bit of the story. That's interesting. I had forgot that you studied international relations, and uh, that's that's also what I studied. And um, I think a big part of that. <clears throat> was when I was younger, I, I, I did a lot of traveling with my father. That was uh, something he was very passionate about. And uh, you know, he was also really interested in, in seeing these cultures that that were still very traditional in a way that, that hadn't that kind of, as you said, been exposed to that idea of like the, the standard middle-class American ideal that if we all live by that, we'll be happy. And, and I think that was something that also, you know, really fascinated him. And, and I was very fortunate in that way at a young age to be exposed to a lot of that. And, um, you know, even something that, that I think is really, you know, really dying out in the world is uh, as, as the world does become seemingly so much more small and connected, which is, is beautiful in a way too. The, the downside of that is, is there is this homogeneity. Um, but it was interesting because when I went to university, I, I think I didn't really want to be there, but it was just, that's what one did, you know, at least in my family. And that was very much encouraged. Um, but I had, I didn't really, I think, want to be there, or really want to major in anything, but one had to choose. And so inter international relations seemed like something that called to me because again, it was about this curiosity of, of a diversity of, of ways of being, how do you unite, uh, you know, what it, what it is to, to relate to, to different communities, to different ideals. Um, but I think I, I, I became a bit disillusioned in that too. It, it seemed very bureaucratic, uh, a lot of ideas and, and not necessarily so much understanding, um, which is something I've kind of come to see in university a lot. There's, it seems like there's a lot of knowledge and yet not necessarily so much wisdom in that way. Um, Beautiful. Yeah, do you, but I, I never really thought about that. I mean, do you think, uh, do you think, I mean, cause I'm just thinking about that now. Do you, do you think there is something in that idea of international relations, which is kind of what you were looking for? Like this, 
this questioning, this curiosity of different cultures and, and trying to understand these commonalities and, and what actually bring people together? Oh, yes, yes. And uh, that was my, my basic curiosity, for sure. Now, what brings people together now, in a healthy, harmonious way? And this continues to be, I would say, my main field of research. And actually, uh, in, in history, we see that international relations just appeared as a separate field of study, a specific course in universities, exactly to answer that basic question, why there is no peace between nations? Why is there conflict? Yeah. So I would say that, that essentially you know, my, my, my intention there was, was, was aligned, was, was correct. But uh, as we know in universities, from my, from my perspective, um, people lose a little bit you know, the essence and it gets to be more and more about adapting and just following the flow and how can we keep running in this never-ending current of, of modernity and, and, of course, economics, um, the financial aspect to it ends up being the main thing. But... Your question brought me something uh, about harmony in people. This, um, this is something, <clears throat> I would say that this is one of the main things that really lights me up. You know, um, from all the places that I've been, and I've been to many different communities and many different centers, I would say that that's, that's the essence of, of my work. Uh, I, I heard once, from from a shaman that the speciality of ayahuasca is to to bring people together uh, to connect people or in other words to teach people how to love each other things really yeah um we know that uh, ayahuasca can be described in a myriad of forms in infinite ways but I like that perception, and, and that's my experience in working with people. Uh, uh, I see that what most people are yearning uh, is a sincere connection with the other. Is um, and and it's funny how most, if not all, of our traumas and 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 distress and and and, and complications in our emotional and mental life comes from conflicts in relationships, uh, our current relationships or, or relationships with family or, or, or ancestors, conflicts and relationships, all these ideas that ended up coming back to us. I know it might sound cheesy or, again, romantic, but if we really look at it in a simple way, um, what really helps us to, to be healthier, not only emotionally or mentally, but even physically healthier, um, is learning how to love. Yeah. And um, somehow I see that ayahuasca keeps teaching me that. Not only ayahuasca, but my path with yoga, with meditation, in my daily life. I like to remember that. Uh, one of the ways that I also describe ayahuasca 
is I see this medicine as something that shows me the Dharma, you know, this, this word that was translated in so many ways you know, that can be understood as the, the eternal and inherent nature of reality or the universal law or the perennial philosophy, as Huxley called it. But I see that in that space, uh, I'm invited to really notice and perceive what is that that is bringing me into, into a more connection with my body? What is helping me to, to relax my heart, to relax my shoulder, to have an, to have an open heart? What is that that is helping me to, to breathe you know, to take a deeper breath or to, to, to find that ease of being. So I see that ayahuasca is constantly showing me the dharma, you know, helping me to perceive, okay, what happens if I indulge in, in, in anger or rage? Nothing wrong with it. We have all the freedom to do that. But really observe what is happening with your internal organs, what is happening there. Okay, it's not a punishment, but it's it's teaching me how to 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 perceive that more clearly, more consciously. Yeah. And um, one thing that I that I've been noticing a lot in our current civilization, our current time, or whatever, um, is that we've been praising a lot self sufficiency. Know, to be independent and to be self-sufficient and to be the one that I don't need or depend on anything or anyone. And I don't see that we were wired biologically to that. No, we are mammals. No, there's such an importance for us to, to connect with the other, to need each other and that, and, and, and even to say that nowadays, no, I need you, it sounds unhealthy, it already sounds like maniac, paranoid, no, I don't want that kind of codependency or whatever. But it seems that that's, that's the nature and that's very humbling, you know, in a humbling way to say, hey, yeah, no, I need you, you know, we need each other. And... Uh, that, that brings something to my heart. Um, I, I have a very dear place here in Brazil that is called the University of Light. It's one of the, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hybrid of community, meditation center, retreat center. And uh, I would say that the speciality of that place is to teach people how to be together without creating war <laughs> and really to really be together. It's, a, it's an experiment of over almost 40 years now. And uh, from my perspective, it's one of the most successful, simple, humble places that I've ever been. Yeah. It's, it has no specific honor. It has no specific lineage. They're not trying to teach anything to anyone uh, they're not trying to force any kind of uh, philosophy or religion or ideas no it's it's simply a place that is inviting presence 
is inviting us to slow down and to pay attention on what is happening around. Yeah. And it's beautiful to see how people flourish in this kind of context, how they start to really deal with things that were there in the background, that they were not having the time to pay attention to because life was happening. So these things start to come to the surface, the pain, the wounds, and there is a healthy container to process them. And uh, yeah, I would say that in agreement with what Chidnat Han he says, no, Chidnat Han he said that the next Buddha won't come in the form of an individual, but will come in a form of a group of people that really understand and see and connect with each other. And this is an interesting question, I would say. Yeah. Why is it so difficult to put people together and not ge generate crazy conflicts? No, but really together. Yeah. Not, not with distractions, we're trying to run away or finding ways to repress or to close things. But how, why is it so difficult not to bring people together in a harmonious way? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, beautiful. <clears throat> So when you when you finally left for Asia, what was what was that calling? Was it to to continue to kind of explore these paths like yoga? I know you also spent some time in Indonesia, uh, learning martial arts. What was what was that journey like for you? And was it to discover these things that you you know you, you said, for example, like yoga? You realized there was something that. It kind of took what you had learned in in the the the, the plant medicine ceremonies and begin to to somehow reveal those in a different level. So I guess kind of two questions: What was that journey like for you? What 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 manifested, and then uh, how that led you deeper into yoga and, and what you found through that path? Okay, Jay, there are many. <laughs> Again, the, the long stories. <laughs> Uh, I'll try to summarize them. Um, but so imagine I was around 20 years old at the time and uh, I was in love with the world. I wanted to see more and to explore more and to discover more about myself and about this reality. And uh, I had, I remember, I had a one-way ticket to Thailand. <laughs> And uh, I had, I think, around 2,000 reais in my bank account at the time, which nowadays, 2,000 reais is like less than $500. <clears throat> and uh, I didn't have any plan to come back to Brazil. I, yeah, that was my only and main intention. I don't want to come back. And... Uh, well, that's, a, that's, a, that's also a very common story, you know, especially in the 70s with all these movements, the Asian thread. But I somehow, I would say that my purpose, I, I, I was very clear with my purpose. You know? It's very easy when we get in these journeys to get into party mode or to, to just get into enjoying things. Nothing wrong with that. But there was something really serious for me in this journey. There was something really, I don't know, important. 
And uh, Asia was very generous with me, very generous. I ended up staying in Bangkok for only three weeks, exactly because of that. I saw that the city was beautiful, mysterious, interesting, but I couldn't find something that was that had that substance, that essence that I was searching. You know, it was it was great to be there, and I was worried because I said, "Okay, I have only this money. I'm I'm meeting a bunch of interesting people here, but it's not here." And I remember, <laughs> I remember I went to to a park in in Bangkok that is called Lumpini Park. Yeah, Lumpini. I remember because it's the name of the, the city where Buddha was born, no? Lumpini Park. And I was coming from, from, from a long journey in Latin America. And another detail important to the story is that in La Paz, I lived in a Hare Krishna temple for, for a few months. No, I never became a Krishna, but I was there serving and just learning the bhakti yoga, the karma yoga, learning all these different aspects you know, of cleaning, cooking, connecting with the divine in different shapes and forms. And so there was in a city that is you know, that one of the, big, the biggest Buddhist country in the world, um, in that little park <laughs> related to Buddhism. And I was sitting down and just writing romantically no to Krishna, like, Krishna, what am I doing here? Uh, how can I find another place, something that has a heart, something that is more aligned with what I want to learn? And I was, <laughs> with all this passion, writing, asking for some guidance to Krishna. Well, <laughs> if, the, if the, these things exist or not, the fact is that in that moment that I was writing to Krishna, I started to hear, ding, ding, ding. Think, what? That's, is this possible? This sounds like the Krishnas, but no, it's not. And I came back and then I started hearing more. It was Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. Wow, the Krishnas are here. So there was this place far from where I was. Lumpini Park is huge. And I sit there. They were doing the rituals or ceremonies. And I remember seeing this guy that was leading the ritual he had these huge impossible eyes in the color of honey. And I was immediately attracted to talk to him. And, uh, and I ended up finding out that he was from Nepal. And I went to talk to him. I, it's a pity that I don't remember his name. But I explained to him my story, my intentions, what I was looking for in Asia. And he told me, um, Prabhu, they call everyone Prabhu. No, I, I like that about the Krishnas. Prabhu means teacher. You know, they call everyone teacher. So you're my teacher. You're my Prabhu. Uh, so Prabhu, I think you are. I think you are in the wrong country. <laughs> if this is your intention, you need to go <laughs> a little deeper in Asia. You need to go to India. And I said, okay, I don't even know how to get there. And then he said, no, 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 look. He called another Prabhu, Prabhu, come here. This guy was from India. He said, please help this brother here to, to go to your country. And I'll never forget that. That guy took me in his car in a long journey in Bangkok. He bought me ice cream. 
and uh, and he took me to the Indian embassy, explained to me everything, translated everything because he could speak both Thai, English, and uh, and Hindi, of course. So that that's how I I felt my calling to India. Yeah. So I ended up flying from. <laughs> that's a funny story as well. From uh, Bangkok to Kolkata, and I arrived in India. <laughs> I arrived in India. It was in the Durga Puja, and the biggest city for the Durga Puja festival uh, in India is Kolkata. And I didn't know that. I didn't know it was Durga Puja. I didn't know. So it was something like arriving in Rio <laughs> during the carnival and thinking that that was their common life. <laughs> that, oh, that's why they talk so much about India. Look how they live. <laughs> it seems like a party. <laughs> so I thought that that was the normal for India. So, yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and, and and then how did that uh, how did that lead to to, to yoga? Was that something that uh, you had an intention that that then you were there and and you wanted to go deeper into that? And was there a school or something you found, or it was just a, a practice of 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 kind of being and experiencing there that that you started to learn? What what was that like for you? Great, Jay. Um, so it was a combination of many things uh, there was a lot of i was very lucky in so many ways because um I, there was something that was both a challenge but i saw that it was also a protection for me the fact that i didn't have money so i couldn't be in the tourist in the tourist track of yoga courses and uh, all that big seen in India of the traditional you know, courses for foreigners and the expensive classes and this thing that I, I had to find things that were, I would say, authentic and not for foreigners to buy. Uh, so it was very challenging. It was a lot of work digging and trying different places. But I would say that what really helped me when I arrived in Kolkata after a long story, uh, I was in Sudder Street. That is the street where people go to serve Mother Teresa's houses. So there are a lot of foreigners in there. And uh, so in that, in the hostel where I was, I, can, I think I can, uh, Paragon was the name of the hostel, Paragon Hostel. I still remember that I met this American lady and um, she showed me some pictures of, um, of a project in which she was working. And then I saw this bunch of children, young, small children, all sit, sitting in meditation in a beautiful garden. And I said, okay, there's something there. What is this? And she said, oh, this is Alice project. It's, um, it's in Varanasi. I've been volunteering there. It seems to be a very sincere, soulful place. If you want to come and visit, please come and visit. And then I traveled a little bit with my Japanese friends at the time. You know a little of these stories <laughs> with Yoshi and all those. 
getting lost in Nepal and I said, okay, no, this is, this is not my purpose here. So I decided to come back and to visit Lisa in the Alice Project School in Varanasi. And uh, the Alice Project was where my body, my heart felt at home. I said, okay, this is what I'm looking for. Yeah, so the Alice Project is a beautiful project. It's a school in India that has as its main purpose to bring back into education the traditional teachings of India. Because nowadays the schools are like in the West. Now they teach maths, biology, they're teaching them how to have a career in this and that, but they totally neglected most of the, the, the mainstream schools in India totally neglected the treasure of consciousness, of teachings that they have there. So uh, the Alice Project uh, has as its patron the Dalai Lama. It, it is deeply connected with um, Lama Yeshe, that is a famous Lama in the Tibetan tradition. And the founder is a very interesting Italian man that is a direct disciple of Lama Yeshi and the Dalai Lama. And uh, so the, in a short, the purpose of the Dallas project, from my understanding, is to teach the kids uh, shunyata, you know, or the real nature of phenomena. So Valentino Giacomin, the founder of the school that I'm immensely grateful for, he wrote over 20 books for children, trying to translate and adapt all these teachings for children, you know, for, for them to grasp those concepts in, in that age. And I would say that what I've learned there you know, is a very foundation of my work because I was living with these children and it was so authentic you know, that their their dedication to to the dharma, to to being aligned with integrity, to open their hearts, to work with kindness, with compassion, you know, and to see how that comes so naturally to children, you know, to see that there is really a potential there for humans, undoubtedly. It was very inspiring. It's been like a compass to my work. So I ended up spending almost two years working at the Alice Project. I became the, the coordinator of the Bodh Gaya branch. They had a branch in Bodh Gaya. And I learned a lot in practices there because in Bodh Gaya branch, we received 37 refugees at the time that were refugees from Bangladesh, from a, an ethnicity called Chakma. And the Chakmas are historically related to the Shakya clan, you know, the, the, the family of Siddhartha Gautam. You know, Chakya was the, 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 the Shakya clan you know, that ended up becoming Chakma over time. So they are directly related to the Buddha, according to history. And uh, so they still speak Pali, they pray in their language. And uh, I don't know if that was me romanticizing things, but I don't think so. There was a, there was a sweetness to those children uh, 
that I've never experienced anywhere else. And people could notice that. They didn't have anything. They, they, not even passports or birth certificate because India has this long tradition in receiving uh, refugees, but um, they not always, they recognize them as citizens. So that was the case of the Chakmas at that time. Uh, so they they couldn't have any kind of property. Their families were in horrible situations in a state called Arunachal Pradesh. Uh, but there was that commitment with kindness. I remember after around one year working there, and imagine you no know, children living together from all ages, from 11 until 17, 18 years old. I remember after one year living there, a lady from London that was involved with the, with the Karmapa Monastery, uh, she was secretary or something of Karmapa Monastery there. Uh, she, Nina was her name. Uh, she, she asked me, Publio, how, how do you deal here with the conflicts between the children? And I stopped and said, conflicts? And then I realized <laughs> that was something really really unique about the place that it, for more than one year I was there living living closely to those boys you know, to all those kids and I've never witnessed one single conflict or fight or discussions you know? there was that deep committed sense of kindness and brotherhood <laughs> which is impressive in itself <laughs> So, so yeah, to summarize, Alice Project is one of my strong foundations you know, where I really learned the importance of, <clears throat> and not the cheesy importance, but, but the, 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 the deep liberating sense of kindness and compassion and, uh, and seeing the other as myself. You know, seeing how that really is, is an intelligent thing for me, not exactly for the other, as the Dalai Lama said, you know, learning how to be intelligently selfish. That is when we really learn that to be kind and uh, to have compassion and to love others is good for me first. Yeah. So, yeah, it was very, very a beautiful time of my life. And I'm super grateful for that project that is still going, is still flourishing. Yeah. yeah beautiful. So it sounds like a, a lot of that teaching was also rooted in, in Buddhism. How would you, how would you describe Buddhism? And, and also, how would you describe yoga? Because these are, these are words that, that I think are very common now. Many people have a definition of them or, or think they, they realize what it is. But I mean, even within yoga, it, it seems like yoga is something that's that's very common now. Everyone has heard of the word. Many people go to classes and practice. But there's certainly very much of that seems to be taught in a very specific lens. I mean, even with yoga, there's there's many types of yoga. There's, as you said, bhakti yoga, karma yoga. There's 
There's, uh, you know, asana yoga, raja yoga, hatha yoga, jnana yoga. I mean, there's, and, and these are just the ones that have been somehow defined. <laughs> so how would you, how would you describe what, I mean, I know this is a big question, but how, for you, how would you describe what is yoga? What is Buddhism? What is, what is the root of these things and what are they pointing towards and, and why do you find them to be important? Well, that's a huge question. And let's see, how can I summarize that? Uh, so it's important to understand the context. No? So uh, yoga obviously appears in Hindu context, if we can call Hindu, which is also already very general and doesn't explain much. But uh, yoga appears in that Indian context of all these traditions that we put in a general basket called Hinduism. And Buddhism, no? Buddha came from a Hindu family as a rebel you know, in a time in which, for instance, everybody was teaching in Sanskrit you know, and you could only teach in Sanskrit that it was only dedicated for very few people, only, only the most, the richest and the privileged could speak Sanskrit. He started teaching in Pali. That was the language of the people, of, of, of all peoples, um, the popular language, so to say. So Buddha came as a, I see him as a Hindu rebel. You know? He was saying, okay, this really got lost into religions, into politics and uh, other stories that are very distant from the origin. And uh, somehow I see that he tried to strip out <laughs> all this colors and, and gods and goddesses from Hinduism and this and that and to come to the core of the issue that is super attractive to the West nowadays. That's why there is a kind of Buddhist phenomena happening with all professors in universities in the U.S. There's a huge movement of modern Western Buddhist teachers. Why? Because it is very much connected to a science of the mind. Now, mindfulness is the word that the West found to digest um, or to present in a more digestive way for Western audiences, meditation, now, Buddhist meditation, you know, stripping away all the religions, all the traditions, all the aspects uh, behind that. So um, Buddhism, and, uh, and I guess many people will share that, that uh, perception is nothing but uh, a sincere methodology or approach for us to perceive in first person what is the mechanism of the mind? Now, how does this thing that we call mind in a general way, also in India they have so many more specific ways to describe that, uh, much more specific than mind only, but how, how does it work? And uh, so I would say that the, the, the beautiful thing of, of Buddhism, and I will connect that with yoga soon, is that it's not on the realm of belief. I would say that uh, at least in me, I'm tired of trying to believe in things. And I see that most of us in a time in which there's so much information available, we can access all the scriptures, all the texts, all the... You know, all the esoterics and all the most mysterious things. 
we are tired of believing in things. And the beautiful thing about Buddhism and yoga, from my perspective, is that it's an invitation. And medicine, you know, that's how I connect all of them in the, in the medicine path, is that it's an invitation to experience something, to see something, to get in direct contact with something. So there is a common human yearning to experience the divine since immemorial times. Yeah. And uh, maybe we don't see that as experiencing the divine per se, but there is a common feeling in all of us that there's something missing, that there's something to be complete, that there's some, there's some kind of thirst here and there that we try to solve in this way. We try to solve in relationships. We try to solve in getting richer. We try to solve in getting smarter. We try to solve in following this diet or having these supplements or investing different but the thing of both yoga and 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 buddhism is that they go to the core of that what is that missing in itself that seems to have no end hmm? and what are the strategies that you've been using for this long are they working or it's just like this okay you go get that and then there's again that missing something and again that missing something so and that could be roughly translated you know, both in, in, in Hinduism, in yoga tradition, in, in Pali, in Buddhism, as dukkha. You know, that's what we are talking about here, dukkha, the, this permanent discontentment about reality, you know, this, this annoying, constant feeling that we all share, <laughs> that it's not complete, that there's something missing. So in a more... I would say in a more academic way, uh, from my perspective, yoga and Buddhism, they share the same roots. If you get Patanjali, if you get to study or read the sutras of Patanjali, you know, Patanjali is describing in most of the sutras the same things, sometimes with the same words, what Buddha was teaching around meditation. So if you get to, 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 to some of the Yoga Sutras, uh, Patanjali will talk about Raga and Divesha, craving and aversion. That is the basic teaching of the Buddha, no? the, the craving and aversion, no? pay attention to that, the origin of desire, what is really causing you suffer. So, yeah, as I said, it's a huge... <laughs> It's a huge uh, answer, but I would say that both of these traditions are, are pointing to something that is helping us to remember that there is nothing actually missing if we just remember that. If you just give it some space and find ways to reconnect with your nature, with your essence, you perceive that there is nothing missing. Yeah. And I see that this is a huge message to our time in which we are constantly captured by this ever-growing feeling that there is something missing. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, it's coming to me that famous quote from, from Joseph Campbell uh, in which uh, he says that People, people say that what we are all seeking is a meaning for life. Uh, and uh, he says, I don't think that that's true. 
I think that what we are really looking for, what we are really searching is for the very rapture is the word that he uses, the very rapture, the very feeling of being alive, yeah? of being awakened, of being here, uh, of staying here yeah? in an awakening way. Yeah, Jay, I don't know if that answer, but <laughs> it's a little of that, yeah. Yeah, beautiful. So kind of continuing the journey, how did, how did that, you know, you, you, you take in all of this and then eventually you, you end up back in Brazil. And, and also when I, when I met you, I, you know, it, it became apparent that you had also worked in the Santo Daime tradition and, and um, you know, this for, for anyone who doesn't know, it's, it's a Brazilian tradition and it's, it's a very Brazilian tradition actually in a way because it was, Founded by this, uh, you know, African descent brasileiro. This, this, uh, I guess you would call him a gauchero, someone who was rubber tapping in, in the time of the the rubber boom, and he he discovered ayahuasca, most likely from from the indigenous people in the Amazon, and and so it's this really interesting thing that really could only emerge from Brazil. It's this indigenous wisdom of working with ayahuasca from this black Brazilian man who also kind of incorporated this, uh, maybe you could call it like African spiritism and then bringing in the, the, the Portuguese Christianity, the, the, the ideas of Jesus and Mary and kind of bringing all of these things together into this very unique <laughs> Brazilian uh, methodology, uh, science in a way. So maybe uh, you, you can speak a little bit about that, how, how you found Santo Daime, how you, it's also interesting because you had already worked with, uh, with the Peruvian Amazonian traditions and, and, and what, what that was like for you, beginning to go into that path. Great, great, Jason. Um, so yeah, Santo Daime, the, the word they use for, for this phenomena that you just descri described is, syn is syncretism, no? Uh, Santo Daime is, is a syncretic religion for excellence uh, and uh, uh, in the combination of all <laughs> this, <laughs> there's a lot of the African tradition with the Orishas and some, some shape or form and uh, the, 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 the shamanism, you know, the, the worship of nature and the sun and the moon and and the Christianity. So how did I get you to Santo Daime? Um, it's funny, you know, how something happens when you are aware of something, you start to notice that something everywhere. Um, probably it was there all the time, but I wasn't just paying attention. But when I came back to Brazil from Peru, <clears throat> after my first ceremony there, of course, I started telling my friends of this experience that I had with ayahuasca in the middle of the jungle. And Many of them, for my surprise, said, oh, yeah, I've been to Santo Daime, the ayahuasca here, the center there, and uh, Santo Daime, this, Santo Daime. I said, oh. and the close friends that never told me that. I said, oh, okay, can, can we go together? And in that time, I was living in Brasilia, and they took me to this beautiful church that is, uh, I think it's called Céu de Maria, if I'm not wrong, maybe, maybe, I think it's Sergio Maria. This, this name is coming to me. And uh, I really like the, the essence that comes from Santo Daime. Uh, 
it's religious yeah? and it's completely different from a work like day and night uh, or it's like going to a bossa nova concert or a heavy metal concert it's it's something completely different uh, but the the teachings that they bring i i like them uh, i like what i've learned and uh, also i like that aspect of devotion to something you know i'm I'm a person, I'm very much connected to my heart. <laughs> Sometimes, yeah, some people told me, okay, that's why, that's because you're a four in the Enneagram, or that's because you're Brazilian, or because you're Latin, or whatever, independently of the explanation. Uh, I, I feel very comfortable feeling emotions. You know? And in India, they say that those who are very comfortable uh, very connected with emotions. The path is bhakti. Now, the easiest path for those is the bhakti, the bhakta path. That is the path of devotion. So, um, so the Santo Daimi helped me to have a glimpse of what is this story of devotion? What is this to sing or to praise? some force or some lord or something that I don't see, understand, that I can't measure. So I would say that in, in those Santo Daime ceremonies, it was the closest that I could get, you know, this rational mind and this Western academic body into, into a sincere space of collective ecstasies of singing and, ah, and connecting to that light or connecting to that because that's some that's the beauty of of santo daimi ceremonies that it's a collective experience you now there are studies here in brazil they study a lot in which uh it seems that they have the same visions together collectively and they get into the same spaces together through their chant and they connect together so i'm not sure how these studies happen i i know that there are a lot of neuroscientists involved in these ayahuasca studies here in brazil in so many different areas but i remember reading that a while ago so and that's what i experienced there the importance of faith the importance of of the devotion to something you know, of that bhakta aspect that is so difficult for us. Now in India they say bhakta path is the easiest of them. The devotional path is the easiest of them, but it's the most difficult for the Westerners because we need everything measured and explained and, and reasonable. That is the jnana path, not the intellectual path. Uh, <laughs> and I like the addition to that that they say the jnana path. I think these are words of Ramakrishna Paramahansa, probably, in which he says that um, the jnana path or the path of intellect are words that leads to silence. <laughs> you think, you think, you, you use all these structures and then there's nothing to be thinking. It's about perceiving, you know, connecting directly. So, yeah, another another metaphor he uses, like the, the jnana path, the path of the intellect, in which we are so much ingrained nowadays, is like 
a doll made of salt trying to measure the depths of the ocean. <laughs> it disappears. <laughs> so, yeah, Jay. So the, the Santo Daime tradition for me represents that. Something that is very dear in my heart, in the level of faith, in the level of uh, a devotion. Although I've tried in so many different ways, and, and I think I mentioned that in this conversation, I've tried now to, to see if I would become a Hare Krishna. I tried to see if I would become a, a Buddhist monk. I, I felt that attraction to Santadaimi. But it never worked for me to, to belong to a specific religion or, or to, okay, to follow these or that tradition and uh, to become religious in that sense. It never worked. Um, I mean, I've learned from all of them. Obviously, I, I carry this, this care and this deep respect to what all of them taught me and keeps teaching me. But, yeah, it never happened. I, I know you've also mentioned, and I don't know if you'd like to talk about it, but uh, your father and how he was also very connected in a way uh, to, to spirit. And um, is that something that, that you feel maybe kind of shaped you also? And, uh, you know, like, like in a way, is there something you learn from his connection to spirit that also, do you think that that also shaped your path in a way? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Definitely. I mean, uh, so my father, my father, um, when my father was very young, just to bring this to, to your context again. So I always heard these stories from him. No, when my father was very young, at the age of, I think, 12 or 13, he started having visions and hearing sounds and uh, all these things that probably in any other country they would take him to a to a mental hospital and apply electroshocks in him for his good luck <laughs> i tell him this for for his good luck he was taken to a to a spiritual center in brazil in this tradition that is called the spiritism uh, that is, again, something that is very syncretic, uh, that, that carries this, uh, this main, it's Christian, but it also has a lot of influences from, from Africa and from natives. But basically, spiritism is, um, once I explained what was, in spirit, what was spiritism to a professor, in, in Shiarobindo Ashram, uh, 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 she's a Dutch lady, and she looked at me and she said, okay, I think I understand. It's like an enlightened Christianity. <laughs> that's she I'm not sure if that's accurate, but the fact is, uh, spiritism, this tradition of my father and my family, uh, is, is based on reincarnation, is based on charity, is based on some sort of communication with the spiritual world, um, especially through mediumship, 
So there is a famous, a hugely famous saint in Brazil. He's known as a saint. His name is Chico Xavier, who was considered the greatest of the mediums in Brazil, uh, deeply respected, I would say, by everyone in the, virtually by everyone in the country. Uh, so this this is his tradition. You know? He learned the the the. the the idea of, of spiritism is to learn how to develop the mediumship in, in a way that is carefully, carefully intended and focused in helping the others. And it's not for you. Yeah. They say that that's the only path to the real peace. Yeah. Once you use that soul, they're very rigorous with not having any kind of money involved, not charging for anything. It's only charity, sharing and, and giving in that way. So I grew up seeing my father getting into this kind of trances um, very, in a very organized way, you know, in, in, in sessions. And uh, that was common for me. Like that was the reality for me. I just realized that that was something eccentric or different about it when I was much older. So as, as I was growing up when I was sick or when there was something wrong with me, my mother would rarely take me to a doctor, but he would, she would take me to see my father in one of those sessions in which my father was in a very different state like he would resemble much older than he was with a very different voice with his eyes closed and he would just you know, check I don't know what that he was checking there and recommend me this plant or that plant or this medicine or this natural thing so yeah that's that's my my background and I would say that with my father I learned a lot about humility the importance of that as a as a, my father is, yeah, he's, he's a simple man from the countryside of Brazil, but with a very strong moral compass, with a strong um, sense of integrity. And uh, I'm very grateful for, for everything that I've learned from him. I feel... Yeah, the more I travel, the more I hear stories, the more I see the privilege it was to, to be in this family. Of course, with all the, the difficulties, with all the, the conflicts, the, the challenges we all have in families. But yeah, somehow, and, and it, it was much later on that I had this, this realization, I saw that I'm just following my father's steps, just continuing his work. And the main thing that he does nowadays, I would say, it was his life project. He wanted to build a school for, for the local children, for the children in need. You know, Brazil is, is a very poor country. We have a lot of people in, in risk situations here. And uh, so he literally built a school with his own hands, you know, with the help of donations, but he was there as a bricklayer, as a constructor, and, uh, and it's a beautiful place. The school 
has now, I think, around 200 children, and they learn everything for free, different things from capoeira to music. I was teaching English there for a while in the past, circus arts, and um, yeah, so many other things. And they receive all the meals in the school. Uh, So yeah, that, that has a huge impact in their lives, for sure. Yeah, the path of service. My father is a karma yogi, in a short, yeah. Beautiful, Publio. <laughs> so eventually you you found yourself in the Amazon again, in the Peruvian Amazon, uh, at, at this, uh, this, this plant healing center. What ended up bringing you there? What, um, was there a calling to, to, to work with ayahuasca again? And what was it particularly about the, the place you ended up that, that uh, was it something that called you or it was just some synchronicity? <laughs> well, it was a combination of many things, Jay. It's interesting you're bringing this story up to my mind because it involves uh, an Indian friend, a Jain friend. He's from this tradition of Jainism. His name is Ankit. And uh, in the time I lived in India, I connected really well with Ankit. He became like my my dear brother. And uh, I was talking to him this morning. So our friendship is still very alive. And uh, Ankit's dream was to come to South America to visit all these countries and I said okay okay you come and um, you come we would travel I would take you to see these places and at that time I was living and working at the University of Light as a again as a coordinator that seems to be a pattern in my life (laughs) as coordinator of places it sounds much more romantic than it actually is the work Uh, but yeah, I was I was working and I was very very much content with with my life in the University of Light, this community here in Brazil, and uh, and then Kit was coming and I was preparing and we was preparing our itinerary to to our trip. Of course, I wanted to take him to Bolivia, to Peru. And the only place that I wanted to take him that I have never been myself was Iquitos. For some reason, I was thinking of Iquitos. I said, I want to visit that city. I want to go there. And I remember in the day that I was organized, I said, well, I don't know what what we can do in Iquitos. And uh, I was organizing everything and I wanted to answer all my emails. That's a, a practice that I have clearing my mailbox answering everything so then I can go without any anything in the back no there's nothing to solve clear let me go and in that day that I was planning you know, the Iquitos journey with Ankit and seeing what I would do I saw an email from a lady a French lady that I met in India in my post-graduation and it was Alex uh, that she 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 was telling me in the email, hey, Publio, there is this place, and from what I heard of you, you probably will like it. It's called Temple of the Way of Light. <laughs> and uh, it, it's in Iquitos. It's all right, it's in Iquitos. 
this email and and her email was there in my mailbox for over a year that I didn't answer and uh, I said okay this is an interesting there's an interesting connection here and then I went to the website I liked what I saw what I've seen in the in the website and then I I decided to send an email to the contact there I sent an email I told my story I said I worked with yoga with meditation that I had some experience with ayahuasca and that I would love to visit the place. And then Jen answered me, Jen Balls. <laughs> she answered me, she said, Publio, yes, please come to, to see the place, to visit the place. And, uh, and then I ended up going to Iquitos with Ankit, with this dear Jane friend. And then Diana, Diana, my dear friend Diana, with whom I'm super connected. I talk to Diana almost every day until today. Diana ended up coming and picking me up in the old office and, uh, in the temple. And uh, I remember Diana was the one that was going to interview me because I was hoping to be working at the temple. Maybe I liked what I've seen there. I had that calling at the same time I was super content working in Brazil at the University of Light so there was that little conflict internal conflict and I remember in the interview with Diana it was Diana Vlad and myself it was the three of them they were interviewing me in Vlad Stumble and we were there we were sharing they were making me questions I was explaining about my life when we ended up the interview we were singing <laughs> we were singing together and just sharing from the heart I said okay there's something here you know with like immediate friendship and connection and uh, I said hey I feel very much an intention here a calling to come and and start working in the temple but I need some time to come back and organize my things in Brazil and to see how that would happen so I came back to Brazil. It was a long process of, oh my, I'm finally grounding in a place. I finally, finally feeling my roots growing here in this community. And there is this invitation to Peru, to the jungle. And what I did, I was trying to, to be silent, to meditate and to listen. And my heart was very clear. I said, Publio, go to the jungle. You need to go. You need to go. And I follow that. And I don't regret it at all. Because the temple ended up being one of the most important places in my life. Not only for work, but for relationships with people, for learning more deeply in a coherent way, what medicine is in this modern world with respect to the indigenous people. So, yeah, I, 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 I have such a, a deep reverence to, to the temple in, in so many levels because it was a place that allowed me to flourish the work that I've always wanted to offer and uh, and it's a place where I also see that I found family, you know, like people like you and uh, and all the people that work there that we love and 
and I remember when I arrived there, I said, "Hey, what I'm I'm really looking for here, I'm 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 looking for friends, you know, like friends, really looking for that family connection, you know, for friends, and and that's what I found. I found a lot of friends in there." <laughs> So uh, <clears throat> at the temple, they're, they're working in the Shipibo tradition. And uh, what was that journey like for you? Uh, kind of a, as a personal journey, beginning to, to work with ayahuasca and that tradition. And what did you see and what did you find? And, and then also, because I think these things are, are kind of intertwined, uh, is there's not only the personal journey, but there's the journey of when you're working with everyone, beginning to see their journey and and archetypes and uh, you know commonalities and 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 what did you what are things that you took from that process of of you know working with so many people, teaching them, uh, beginning to facilitate people on a deeper level and and just kind of what I guess what that journey was like for you all the the, the things that began to arise from that okay Jay wonderful and super important question you know? um, one of the things that I <clears throat> that I really loved at the temple uh, is perceiving the deep reverence and respect towards the tradition there you know? the Shipibos. peoples you know? I've always seen an attempt, so delicate attempt, to, yeah, to connect with it and bringing these into that, that context where we're receiving so many foreigners, how, how this dance can happen. You know? um, well, you know that the, the, the Shipibo tradition, you know, with their, their art, you know, their their healing speciality is so absurdly profound and so difficult to put in words, but it, it, it was so crucial you know, in, in my path with this medicine because um, you might understand it quite well but I usually tell this to some people that I see ayahuasca as an instrument, right? It's an instrument, uh, like like a guitar or in a way, of course, no, but in a certain aspect, ayahuasca can be seen as an instrument, a guitar, as a, as a scalpel, or, and it really depends. Now, the beauty of, of, of the, 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 the song, the music that will come or, or the, the surgery that will happen, it really depends on the person, on the individual there that is guiding that instrument. And no doubt that the Shipibos are, are highly familiar and, and skilled with this, with this instrument. <laughs> so the things that I've seen and I've experienced in first person facilitating and, and, and in ceremonies where I was participating as, as, a, as a pasajero um, really touched parts of my rational mind that were questioning a way that there's no way back. You know? That is very humbling. 
that is it's like okay there is really something very mysterious reality that i can't explain with this current level of of perception with this current uh level of attention or however we want to discuss that so the the the, the shipibos uh, they they represent such a A, a treasure, an Amazonian treasure there uh, that I would say very few people can can nowadays can understand the importance of this tradition to to the healing uh, scenario in the world. So I'm not sure what else I can tell about it, Jay, but I must say that what I've seen at the temple and what I see in these um, integration sessions that I offer is that it works. And it works really well. And it works in a way that makes people human again. It helps people to, it helps us to perceive the importance of an open heart the importance of connection and vulnerability. I don't want to keep repeating myself, but this is what I've learned uh, in those ceremonies with those ikaros and those chants that really could help me to touch places of vulnerability, of pain, things that would make me scare but that they were so important for me to face and find a way to be present with them and uh, and stop avoiding what I was probably avoiding for so long. So I was I was seeing I was reading a very interesting article recently. Diana sent me this article, Diana Rogers, and uh, it was an attempt to compare mindfulness cognitive behavior therapy and uh, and psychedelics plant medicine work and uh, what they perceived as a common central common element in all these three aspects was to learn how to stay present with a discomfort without generating aversion without creating distraction or trying to run away or to let go. How many times in a ceremony, at least I've experienced that in first person with the maestros, through their chants, as if they were really calling, really trying to bring back my attention (laughs) persistently, (laughs) persistently to something that was there bothering me that I was so scared of that I didn't want to see or to look at. So as if they were really digging, 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 bringing, bringing, bringing back my attention to that part of my body where this memory or that emotion was stored that I didn't want to access and that I was running away. So bringing me to that so I could finally stay with that, that I was creating a version to take some breaths there and finally allow that to be processed. The meditation does the same thing. 
know, in deep meditation process in a well-orchestrated um, cognitive behavior therapy session that's the same, you know, acknowledging the aversions, the running away of, of something. And they should be able to do that in much more than that, obviously, but they do that in a, in a beautiful in a beautiful way, helping people to reconnect with what they've been avoiding. So. Would you describe that as, for you, the, the essence of the work? If, um, you know, probably most people listening to this have, have worked with plant medicine to some degree. Maybe people are listening for the first time and they're, they're really curious about working with plants. Um, kind of before we started recording, we were talking about this idea of, you know, what the intention of this podcast was. And one of that was to, to give voice to people who are really engrossed in this work. Uh, because I think even for people who've maybe kind of flirted with working with plants, there may be some connection, but it's, I find it's often very different from how the practitioners themselves would describe the essence of this work. So I know it's a big question, but, but from your own experience, <laughs> you know, working with these plants and then also, you know, because it's very valuable, the experience of, of having worked now with many people, what, you, what would you describe as actually going on when, when people are, are working with these plants and, and are there archetypes you see of why people are coming down? You, you mentioned a couple, but why people are coming down? And then when they're actually going through that process, what is, what is happening when they're, when they're ingesting these plants, when they're being worked on by a, a curandero, a, a plant medicine practitioner? And you also mentioned this idea of simply it works. So what does that mean to you it works and and through your experience now of also kind of following up with people what is what is working what is what is being done that you see is so beneficial okay beautiful i think it's important to mention that of course it's not a panacea no it's not like a the magic pill, the thing that will save everyone, that will change everything. But it works on what its purpose is. And I would say, that's why I connect meditation, yoga, and medicine, because I see a similar purpose in all these traditions that is helping me to connect more deeply with myself. And when I say myself, it's not my personality, it's not my story about who I am. But with myself, human, you know, with myself, the, the, the big aspect of being myself, with my essence, or our essence as human beings. So, um, in a in a in a general way, what I see that this process um, with this with these medicines, with ayahuasca especially, does. It's, it's really helping us, helping me to revisit or to touch these places that are defining my reality right here and right now, but they are not so conscious or they are not conscious at all. Yeah. They're just bringing them to the surface and pointing to me, hey, you see how that is defining the way you're seeing yourself or the way you're seeing that person or the way you're seeing the reality so that we can be lighter, we can, we can see reality more clearly. Mm -hmm. um, 
I remember when uh, uh, when in, in in here in Brazil again in Santo Daime tradition. Uh, I think it was Master Irineu, maybe I don't remember from whom is this quote exactly. But he said, "All that all that ayahuasca does, ayahuasca is trying." Santo Daime, now they don't call it ayahuasca, but all that all the, the, the daime is doing is trying to help you to become your best friend, helping you, and I understand that it's helping you to connect more deeply with yourself. Yeah. Um, there are many parts of ourselves that are in denial. There are many wounds that it's safer for us to, to not feel or to not connect to. And that's interesting because one of the main traits of people that are traumatized is a disconnection from the body people don't feel the body they they they, they can't locate exactly where is that emotion where is that sensation where is that happening so uh yoga helps with that meditation helps with that that people have been calling interoception you know interoception the capacity to to perceive sensations and how is that related to thoughts and emotions and ayahuasca does that in, a, in such a clear way you know, how anikaro you know with a with a well-experienced maestro how that that ikaro can move through the body and and open all these blockages and these pathways and and reawaking us to who we truly are. Um, and for me, it's fascinating. I have a little bit of this, <laughs> this aspect of the perennial philosophy. I have a little bit of this, that all the traditions are all pointing towards the same, the same thing. Uh, but one person that is really helping me to see it more clearly uh, is, uh, his name is Almas. Uh, he's one, Gabor Mate is always mentioning Almas in his teachings. I'm currently studying with Gabor the Compassionate Inquiry course. I'm very grateful to that as well. been learning a lot with him. Uh, but Gabor is always mentioning Almas, the diamond approach. And uh, Almas talks about this theory of holes, which for me is fascinating. It's a fascinating way to describe this disconnection, you know, that in essence, especially as children, we are all, we know who we are. We, we are awake in, in, some, in some aspect. You no, know, we, we are relating with nature, with ourselves in, in a naive way. In an, we are not bargaining with reality to get something out of that. We are not dissatisfied, but a child in a healthy environment is present feeling believing that this reality is a paradise and that's how it's going to be <laughs> forever so uh, something happens in our development all of us in which we start losing that connection with our essence you know um, an emotion that is not validated or or, or, or some essential human need that is not nourished, that is not quenched. And we start to create these blockages, these, these connections, these holes, as, as Almas put it, you know, 
that they're not creating a damage in the essence, but we create that fear that there is a hole, that I'm not whole, that I'm not loved, that I'm not, I'm not enough, that I'm not, these are all these beliefs that we carry. I almost get to the extent to say that basically all our current civilization is based on trying to fulfill holes, you know, all the marketings, all the, the companies, all the, the frantic movements that we have nowadays is an attempt to fulfill the holes. What is the tricky things of the holes? It doesn't matter what we try to put in the hole, it won't fulfill. Uh, the, the way to, to really um, heal the holes is to look at it, to stay present with it, uh, to, to, to connect with it in a conscious way, go through the discomfort without creating aversion, so we can come back to the root of it and perceive that there was no hole to begin with. This, for me, is a brilliant description of, of the ayahuasca process as well. You know, uh, as, in other words, as Stanislav Graf would say, that the full experience of an emotion the full experience of a negative emotion, of, an emo of a negative, negative event or a negative memory is the funeral pyre of that emotion. Yeah. So to really feel that pain, to really experience that sorrow that we've been carrying the heart for being alone, for not being accepted, for this and that, to really experience that and see that that doesn't have real substance in your essence. So this is something that this medicine does, you know, from my perspective, and that is so much aligned with so many different traditions. Mm -hmm. <laughs> beautiful. In the beginning, um, you were mentioning this idea of something that, that you found very interesting in international relations was this idea of, of why there isn't peace in the world. Um, and to me, and, and I've heard this expressed in other ways, uh, I think allegedly Lao Tzu said it very beautiful, you know, this idea of if we want to end, you know, darkness in the world, we have to end darkness within ourselves. You know, the, the greatest gift that we can give to the world is our own self-transformation. And so do you find also that that's something that, that you've seen in plant medicine is that like war outside will always exist because it's simply a manifestation of the war that's inside. And if we're trying to end it on an external level, essentially we are potentially always destined to fail. Because if we don't end it on the internal level, then you know the, the outside is just a reflection of the inside. So, for you, do you do you think do you see that that's also something that the that this plant medicine is pointing towards is this idea of of kind of ending the internal war in that way, so that we can move closer to to a direction of the world that we actually want to see. Um. Jay, there are so many levels to that question, I would say. No? <laughs> this is you're just throwing huge questions. <laughs> but let's go. I'm liking it. Well, let's see. Um, 
I would say that there is a risk in in saying that all needs should be solved internally. And that's why I say that there are levels. You know? That, yeah, in a certain level, and if we go really deep in the story of levels, you know, where is inside and where is outside? Uh, but in a more practical, you know, this level, uh, discussion again it comes to the beginning no there is a there is an external context from where the inner conflicts are also coming no there is a a, a mutual <laughs> a, a relation a, a feeding of a, from where this this sadness or this ambition or this anger or this jealousy and is coming from so so yes um, it is about solving the conflict inside but I would say that it's equally important as well for us to start to perceiving more and more how the external situations are not being conducive to that and not necessarily in a political way or in a to, to be violent with that. But I remember, for instance, when I was in Lima, I went to this 10 days Vipassana, that is a practice that I love once in a while to go to a Vipassana. Um, and being there after these 10 days of silence and being very quiet and really quiet, quieting down my nervous system, quieting down my heart, you know, finding that space of that subtle energy you know, with my breath, that subtle presence, the silence, the possible and so delicious <laughs> silence, silence in the mind. And uh, I remember going out and going to Lima and immediately having that crazy headache and uh, noticing <laughs> how not conducive <laughs> this reality is at all <laughs> to presence or to something that could <laughs> bring some health you know, to, to my heart and soul. Uh, I remember, and I love this story, I remember you know, when I was really seriously deep into the meditation practice, you know, I decided to go to Burma. You know, I decided to go to Burma, to a Vipassana monastery, Paok monastery, to really see, okay, am I going to follow the monastic path? And, um, and there was this beautiful teacher there. His name is... Uh, um, Revata, Bante Revata. Um, Bante Revata had such an interesting presence because he looked like a stone or a mountain, but it was very warm. There was a warmth to that grounded mountain stone. Vipassana meditator, no? And uh, so I started practicing there. I stayed there for almost a month. I was you know, working deeply, you know, seven hours of meditation a day, no food after 
<laughs> 11 a.m. in the morning. It was the last meal of the day. And uh, sleeping on a wooden bed and all these stories in Asian monasteries. Um, but feeling that that silence, not that peace, that that contentment that comes from a, a mind that is silent, the natural contentment that comes. And then in one of the last days, I went to talk to him, to Bante Revata. I said, Bante, uh, I need some help. And he said, yeah. Um, I said, so when every time I leave a retreat, every time I'm leaving a retreat, when I get back to, to the city, to... I, I have these very strong headaches, you know, almost like migraines that freezes me, and it's so intense. Um, do you have any recommendation, anything that I could do, you know, any technique or whatever? And then he looked at me and he said, oh, so you have headaches when you're leaving the retreat? I said, yeah, not when you're coming. I said, no. And then he looked at me and he said, so don't leave. <laughs> so just stay here in this environment. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that answers your question directly, but I, I, I would say that it's in, it, there is something that is drawing my attention, particularly in this time, in which it's very important for us to remember the context. And uh, because if we just come to the, to the being, no, oh, it's my work, it's my inner work, there's something about the current perception that, that people start to blame themselves, no? and it's, it's my fault. No, it's, it, it's my fault that things are like this, it's my fault that I'm feeling bad. And we lose something. There is another story, if you if you allow me, that I would say that illustrates well the situation. Um, I remember when I was in in Czech Republic, coming from Asia back to Brazil. I stopped in Czech Republic. I was teaching meditation there. I stayed there for a month. I was in the house of a of a friend, and this friend wanted to to see the medicine, that you have a first contact with the medicine. And I ended up finding uh, a center in, in Czech Republic. For my surprise, in that time, ayahuasca wasn't so popular as it is now. It was maybe 10 years ago or so. And, uh, and then we ended up in this ceremony with this lady. She is Brazilian, and uh, uh, her husband is Czech. <clears throat> And they have this beautiful son with whom I connected immediately. And he was half Brazilian and half Czech, of course. And he was a very a boy that is very alive, very creative, very playful. And uh, we became friends instantly. You know? We were talking about the little prince and this and that. His name was somehow related to the little prince. And uh, I was folding him origamis and... We became very good friends. He was maybe five or six years old. And then a few years later, um, this boy came to Brazil with his family and we were traveling together in Sao Paulo. And uh, we went to this park, that is the Sunset Park in Sao Paulo. 
<laughs> and I was there talking to his mother. And then the boy came, the boy was, he was playing with the children there. <laughs> and then the boy came and he said, at the top of his lungs, Mom, Mom, I just remembered I'm not an annoying child, a child in, in, in Brazil. I don't want to come back to Czech Republic. I'm a nice boy in Brazil. <laughs> <laughs> that was so so beautiful to see you know how of course uh, he, he had all this energy he wanted to interact with people and in Czech Republic he was seen as as a troublesome guy that is not well educated or this and that and in the right context he was flourishing so to really try to finish answering your question I think it's both you know it's inevitably an inner work, but that doesn't mean that there, there's not something, this external reality that can be adjusted and that needs some adjustment. Yeah, beautiful. So then moving on to the next big question. <laughs> oh, come on, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> what, do you, what do you think that, that balance is? Because kind of based on the previous question, this idea of, the external war versus the internal war or in the beginning you mentioned kind of this idea of community like that that we live in this time where it's very difficult to say i need you but then on the one hand <clears throat> the extreme of that being uh you know codependency and so then on the other hand this idea that that also i i don't need you in an absolute sense and which is kind of, as we were talking about earlier, this idea of Buddhism, which is, you know, finding the middle path. Mm -hmm. So maybe you can speak a bit about that, like, because I think that's, that's something, you know, obviously, I mean, I was going to say so many, but the reality is everyone is, is dealing with <laughs> is, you know, how to find that balance, uh, you know, even I guess from a, a more shamanic path, this idea of, 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 ease versus disease and it's you know it's such a fine line uh i've, I've been sitting recently in these uh, mambiaderos with this guy named mika and he uses this really interesting term it's like the what separates insanity from sanity he says is the the it's like the the thinnest line of the the placenta you know it's such a fine <laughs> line so you know, for, for you, for, from all of these different traditions you, you've been looking at, what is what is that line? What is that balance between, you know, on the one hand, just using it as an example, like I need you versus I don't need you, or everything is an external war versus everything is an internal war? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Jason, <laughs> <a> question. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just laugh at this question first <laughs> and, and me daring to answer that. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, but what comes to me sincerely is, is finding that safe space of vulnerability. There's a lot of shame around it. We feel very ashamed. 
you know, of needing someone, of having to connect. And that's where I perceive that the distortions start to happen. And that's when I see that the distortions start to manifest in the external world. So, first of all, the safe container, the safe space where, where I can start opening that up in a way that is not scary for me or for the others. But where that, that thirst, that yearning for that connection with love can be felt and can be respected. Yeah. And I feel we are starting to step into something that is more Sufi than ever. <laughs> no. um, so... Almas, again, who comes from a Sufi tradition, he, he says, and Gabor is always quoting that, he says that uh, people will only allow themselves to see the truth if compassion is present, if there's kindness. If there's no compassion, if there's no kindness, we will still be in our, with our adaptations, with our defense mechanisms, with our distorted strategies to be accepted or to be loved or to find love in some shape or form. So it's not by chance that there is this huge fuss around mindfulness nowadays that goes much beyond John Kabat-Zinn and what the academics are, are doing it. But it seems that there is a confluence of the importance of mindfulness in several, several different lineages and fields of fields of study because I would say that that's 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 the answer to your question you know presence with what is happening there you know presence and, and opening up for the the real thirst that is behind the discomfort does that help a little yeah Something I, I find interesting is, you know, we're, we're uh, apparently, I guess, uh, 2,000 years removed from the teaching of Buddha. And, and it seems like in that time, there, there were many of these traditions that were very much flourishing. Jainism, uh, Christianity arose not too long after that, uh, you know. But but even these seem to have arisen from potentially even older teachings in a way. Um, I, I think we often hear that, you know, today we, we live in this crazy time. It's crazier than ever. There's more distractions, more manifestations of, uh, you know, all of these things going on. And yet these teachings came from 2000 years ago. So there must have been, you know, at least that same level going on then because they were, they were speaking to that, you know, if there wasn't some, as you mentioned, this idea of, of like Dukkha of suffering going on, these teachings never would have arisen. Do you, do you think these are just timeless teachings that they always exist throughout humanity or do you see, I mean, maybe this is something you've never thought of, but, or do you think there's also this kind of cyclical idea of time where, 
there's periods where there's a deep need for these teachings and and then they begin to arise because you know certainly in this time a lot of these teachings do seem to become being made manifest again whether that's simply out of a need or a a facilitation of things like the internet where these are becoming more accessible what is your your feeling on that whether these are just timeless things that that humans always need or or are they also responding to to the time we're in um i want to i want to answer this question first bringing another story i love stories uh from the time when I was studying Indian psychology in Pondicherry, in Aurobindo Ashram, uh, I had that, that teacher that I mentioned earlier, that woman, and uh, her partner, Matthias, was his name, another professor of Indian psychology. And uh, he told us this story that I never forgot it. He said, you know, people often come and ask me, about what I think about reincarnation. You know, so, yeah, Matthias, if there is this thing of reincarnation, uh, what is happening now? Because we never had so many people <clears throat> in the world before, almost 7 billion people now growing. So are we all new souls or what or, or this thing of reincarnation doesn't actually exist so what is your perspective on that and he says well the best explanation i could find is that there's something really interesting happening in our time that everybody wanted to come at the same time <laughs> to see what is happening <laughs> so, so yeah i just wanted to start with that and uh, <clears throat> your your other question, I think, I think that this this path of 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 religions, of self investigation, of touching the mystery is as old as humanity. It is as old as humanity, obviously. Um, and for sure, whenever there is a an an increase of of the pain, of, of the, the distress, also there is more need for hints and paths and uh, procedures to alleviate that pain. Um, I'm not sure where I'm going with this, with this answer, but um, I... I have no doubt that we are living in a time that is probably very despairing in comparison to other moments of human history. I don't know if it's better, if it's worse, but for sure it's very desperating uh, because we probably never had so much access to resources. Uh, and probably in a general sense, of course, there are a lot of people suffering not having the basic things. But for the majority of us, it's never been so comfortable you know, in a material way. You know, if I want, if I, Publio here, me, in this small city in Brazil, in this small village in Brazil, if I want a French cheese of I don't know what, or if I want 
something to please my senses, it's not that hard to find. And uh, probably not even that expensive. But still, I can't pinpoint what is that that is missing? What is that that doesn't allow me to open my heart completely and experience the potential paradise that is life on earth? That little taste that I could have in some moments of deep silence in meditation or in some medicine ceremonies in which I really saw the the immense beauty of the human journey and to be totally open to that. So that's a huge question, Jay. I don't know what else to say. (laughs) You were, you were speaking. I I, I mean, go No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. No, No, I mean, I, I don't know how to answer precisely if, if these things were always present or not present or if this is intrinsic to to humanity or not, but I just I just see that they're very necessary nowadays and that they can bring some solace to to those who dare to touch the pain. Earlier, I can't remember if it was the, the word you used was dharma, but you, you mentioned this idea that that um, there are these universal laws or these these universal truths that these traditions are pointing towards. And often, I see in in, in the world we're living in. I don't know if it's a teaching, uh, kind of this like postmodern teaching of there is no truth, there is nothing that's real. Uh, which also is interestingly a, a very ancient teaching in a way too, but it you know it does seem to me that <laughs> that these teachings are pointing towards what you said that there are these universal laws or truths. W- what do you see? And again, this is a big question, <laughs> but what do you see? Some of those things are like what are these teachings pointing towards that? you know, have obviously made them withstand the test of time. And I think that really speaks to the validity of also what you were saying is, uh, you know, there's a need for them. Uh, I mean, think of all of the the information we have right now, how much of that is going to last in 2000 years? I, I would imagine very little. And yet there are these things which, you know, however we want to call them, spiritual traditions, esoteric teachings that have withstood the test of time. So for you and your experience, what are what are those things that they're pointing towards, which are such gems that that are able to to help us? Okay, Um, I would say that for me, it's very difficult to let go of the perception that there is a mystery. It is mysterious, this reality. Although we try to normalize it and to go and have our coffee and to eat bread and to swim and to make friends and to normalize the situation, it is intrinsically very mysterious, this reality. I mean, I can move my hands, I, I breathe and... I have feet and we eat and this is digested by the body and there's these nutrients and it's it's weird it's it's mysterious if you look at it in a in a 
in a sincere way, in a, in a direct way. And um, I was hearing uh, a physicist talking a while ago, and he said, hey, I don't know, but the probability of this reality happening just randomly without any law or any kind of orientation or guide would be the same as, I don't remember who was the physicist. It was, I think it was in a TED talk or something. It's the same, the probability of this being random, it's the same probability as if we put a bunch, we put a bunch of metals in a big container, uh, this, con this ship containers. You know, we put a bunch of metals and some materials there. And then we shake, we start shaking it, shaking it, shaking it for a very, 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 very long period of time. And we hope that from this shaking of these materials, a perfect airplane Boeing will come out of it. <laughs> so that somehow speaks to me. And that somehow, as I perceive the Dharma, you know, the, the universal law, it's, it's interesting because it's not forcing us to something, but it seems that it's kind of gently, patiently guiding us towards some realization or some kind of perception of something. Uh, it's, and it's funny to me that this law necessarily rewards kindness necessarily in a biological level rewards love rewards compassion there there, there are studies you know, on the physiology of compassion nowadays this uh, this uh, she's her name is Tanya Singer she's a, a neuroscientist from the Max Planck Institute in Germany she studies the physiology of compassion and she proved you know, with rigorous uh, academic scientific studies how compassion, kindness, loving kindness brings health to the physical body. Uh, so that's the mystery for me, that this law is pointing towards love, kindness, connection to the others. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. You mentioned now you're you're stepping into this role. Also, it's something you've been doing of of integration, and and that's a word that uh, you know, especially working with plants, has become much more spoken of. Uh, it's it's seen as something being very important. What does that mean to you? The the idea of integration, and and how do you find yourself uh, being a guide in in helping people in that process? Okay. Okay. So yeah, I've been working with integration now for about maybe four years. Yeah, around four years. And integration can mean there's so many possibilities for integration. But in a in a in a in a simple way, I see integration as how can I bring to my daily life, how can I ground the teachings of a plant medicine work of a psychedelic assisted therapy or whatever, how can I really ground that in my life? How can I make sense that in a practical way in my life? Uh, and uh, the need 
have someone there to reflect that back, to be that safe base of connection is extremely important. Because what happens to most of people, what happened to me uh, in a time in which no one was talking about integration, I had to learn that by myself. So I came directly from Peru, from the jungle, back to a university, to that context that was not at all welcoming to that. And I had to survive and to keep that flame of my heart, of what I've seen, of what really helped me to feel healthier about myself in this reality of life by myself. So I'm really happy that integration is becoming more and more popular nowadays because this is essential for people to cultivate those insights that they had in ceremonies that can fade away really quickly. Um, and not, I wouldn't say exactly fade away, but they can start, people can start to doubt and to question that and to come into very difficult inner spaces uh, because they're more sensitive, they're more open, they're more vulnerable after those experiences. So, Another sense to the word integrate, you know, in Portuguese we have the word integral, integral, that means literally whole, you know, is a path to support you in, in reconnecting with your wholeness, with all the aspects that are part of you, you know, that have been suppressed or denied or disconnected. So it's a very common thing as you might know, Jay, that people after deep experiences with ayahuasca, they come back home and they have a sense that they need to change everything. Yeah. They need to change their, their job. They need to change maybe a relationship. They need to move from where they're living. And that can be a very scary process if they're alone in it, if they have no reference or some sort of, of guidance. So I would say that one of the most important aspects of my work as an integration therapist is is that sensitivity and that being present with the person really offering that space to them and reminding them that there's nothing wrong with what they're experiencing finding that compassionate space to help them to listen more deeply to what are the needs they're finally hearing more louder now after such experiences. So yeah, integration is a it's a huge subject. We are I see that we are still beginning you know, to structure it to structure it better collectively to understand better the nuances of this practice. Um, but it's, it's certainly something that I'm dedicating myself more and more to it. This, this, is, this is my main work nowadays, and I would say that this is my specialization. Yeah. Are, there, are there certain tools that you found to be very beneficial that, that you find yourself working with in your own practice and, and also having, you know, also worked with many people through plant work, maybe kind of as a reflection, you've seen that they've been able to implement certain tools that have really aided them in, in that process? Great. I gave many levels to this question. Um, I would say that definitely having any kind of 
practice, mm-hmm. independently of what that could be. But having any sort of daily practice that gives the person uh, a center of gravity in their days. It could be only sitting down and taking a few breaths for five minutes a day. It could be having a structured prayer regimen or something. It could be a simple yoga practice. Uh, so independently of what it is, I usually encourage people to find that moment in which they can come back home on a daily basis, in whatever means that that can happen to them. Uh, another practical tool that I see that has resonance with virtually everyone I work is, is a work of self-compassion that is becoming more and more popular now, especially because of the help of a uh, a researcher, uh, Christine Neff. She's a professor from Austin, Texas University. She's she's the one that is studied, has been studying self-compassion in a beautiful way. And uh, that makes a huge difference. You know? Helping people to be more kind with themselves. You know? Because what ayahuasca can do, or meditation work can do, or or yoga can do, it can reveal these aspects or these parts of ourselves that we don't like, that we don't want to be there. It becomes very evident. No wonder I'm suffering. Look how what has been happening here. Look how I've been living this life. And uh, there is a funny, a funny thing, a funny law, I would say again, that the more we resist, the more we fight, with these parts, the more disrespect we present to them, the more they close and the more they tend to dominate our lives, to to control ourselves. And the more kindness, patience, willingness to connect with them, we demonstrate, the more they start to reveal their hidden needs behind Know, what we never heard or what there was never there was never space to that and so self-compassion you know, and practic- practices you know, is a is a, is a tool that I offer and I discuss and that I encourage with virtually all all my clients yeah Speaking of integration, you uh, at one point you did the you, you integrated very well, like the Indian head bubble. <laughs> <laughs> it's coming, it's coming. <laughs> you, you, you just you use this word, which I think was very interesting. This uh, this idea of, of 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 coming home or finding home, um, and. It, it's something I I was speaking about the other day with someone and do you you alluded to it a little bit earlier and but but maybe I I misunderstood it too but do you think there there's this idea of of coming home of of the, the journey we go on the, the archetypical hero's journey of of going and seeking and and I think for a lot of people, there's this idea that like, I need to go and find something, you know, something specific. And that when I find that thing, 
then this quality that you were mentioning of like something is missing. Once I find that thing that's missing, then I'll be happy. Then I'll be content. Uh, then my life will be whole. Have you found with yourself that there's paradoxically this interesting thing of the act of seeking in, in a way, I don't know if I'm going to word this correctly, but in a way it's a, it's a letting go. It's a, it's a finding that even though this world is mysterious beyond our comprehension, that the actual thing doesn't lie out there, that it actually somehow is with us. It's, it's, it's already at home, but that we have to go and seek <laughs> paradoxically in order to find that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I totally hear you, Jay, and uh, very well. This uh, so um, many things come into my mind at the same time as you say that. But uh, this is actually this is described, you know, in, in the meditation literature, you know, in the in the deepest practices of vipassana and some other Tibetan practices and. I've experienced a little bit of that, and this is usually described as a risk. Um, why? Uh, there was one long meditation retreat I had in India in, in which it was so evident and so clear the peace and the silence that I could access you know, without anything. It was so strong and so grounded the peace that didn't require anything else besides quieting down my mind my senses relaxing my body and letting go of cravings and aversions now that simplicity of presence and really experiencing strongly undoubtedly that piece why is that a risk because you lose total interest in the external world <laughs> and that was that was a that was a long path for me that was challenging yeah. it was really <clears throat> really difficult for me to to find a motivation to be a human being, a functional human being in the world after that experience. Because, like, why am I going to have the trouble to work and to get this career if I... It's here. It's ready. It's not, it's not missing. That was a huge conflict. And that's an integration to also. That's a path of integration, which I would say that I'm concluding <laughs> recently. It's been a long path <laughs> of integration, you know? finally grounding myself in a concrete way, uh, with a clear career in something that is very aligned with what I love, with what makes sense to me and building my house. So all of this is very symbolic to my path, you know, not separated, but intrinsically connected with it. I know, I know you've been building a, a, a house in Brazil. Um, 
how how has that been is there is there kind of a sense of coming home in in that very literal way and uh, what has that been been like for you uh you know because i can imagine there there's also a lot of conflicting emotions and and kind of a maybe in a way a, a parting or a settling of the past and also stepping into this this new role as well yeah so the construction of this house is as symbolic as it could be Jimmy Jason you know it you participated in the process in so many ways I'm immensely grateful for your support <laughs> and uh, so yeah the, the construction of this house it really feels like this coming home to earth uh, to earth as it is right now in the current context with all the challenges it involves um, I, I could say that a lot of my life uh, especially because of this time in India of the deep con connection with Buddhism and even with with the medicines for a long time was a path of transcendence uh, of okay so these stories of taxes and <laughs> buildings and it's not for me no, my work is about noticing my breath staying present and finding way to keep my heart open so that was obviously not enough i'm not a monk i'm not a saint i'm not dedicating my life only to to that so it was very scary for me yeah, in my integration time when i really really understood that that was part of the human curriculum. <laughs> As Ramdas, Ramdas talks about it beautifully. You know, Ramdas was always very frustrated because uh, he would say that he would always come back to this reality. You know that he would, you know, do all these journeys, all these retreats, all these meditation practices, and then he would always come back. Uh, and to the extent that he's done the long, long retreats with his friends at his home, taking LSD and fasting and reaching the unbelievable high levels and realms of I don't know what, and then he would always come back. And then he finally met Maharaj, you know, his teacher in India. And he went to talk to him. So, hey, Maharaj, explain the situation. I always come back. I see that you're, you know, how, 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 how can I make you not come back? How can I stay in that level of, of consciousness? And then Maharaj told him, so Ramdas, I think you need to accept the human curriculum. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the building of this house for me represents exactly that. You know, accepting the human curriculum, accepting my limitations as a human being, in this body, you know, with, with the challenges we all have, and being humble with it. Yeah. So it's not been an easy process, but yeah, I've been learning a lot. Mm. Reminded me of this story. I, uh, you know, at a certain point in my life, I was also very interested in yoga, and I, I tried many different paths and. 
uh, I became very interested in Ashtanga and I, I found this teacher, Richard Freeman, uh, and uh, his, his wife, Mary. Um, and th there was something about them that I, I really felt there was something I, I could learn from. And uh, I, I applied one time and I was denied because I didn't have enough Ashtanga experience. So uh, I was in New York at the time. So I, I enrolled in the local Ashtanga Shala and I practiced every day and, you know, I completed whatever it was the first series or the second series. And then I applied like the following year and they're like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think you're ready. So I, I came and, but it was very funny because I, th there was this one uh, time and he had a lot of repeat students and one of the repeat students was saying something like, you know, Richard, I'm still suffering. I don't know what's going on and da, 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 da. <laughs> and I can't remember if it was a, a guy or a lady, but he, he turned to them and he just said, uh, I think you need to get a job. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. exactly. Accept the human curriculum. <laughs> Very good, Jay. Very good. Well, beautiful, Publio. We, we've we've touched on a lot. Is there um, is there anything else you'd you'd like to address that we haven't uh, gotten into? Um, yeah, Jay. I just would like to to really express my gratitude first to you and to all these lineages you know, that we mentioned here, you know, to the Shipibos, to the Tibetans, to the Hindus, to 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 the Buddhist cultures and the Sufis, the Jains, and really noticing the importance of each one and all of them, you know, to the plants, to the medicine. I just wanted to, yeah, offer this, this space of, of gratitude, of acknowledgement on how precious these paths, these traditions they are, and how how important they were in my path and how important I see they are in this context as well. Yeah. You, you, you spoke earlier, um, I'm not sure if I'm going to get his name right, uh, Tak Nhat Hanh, I think, the, the Vietnamese uh, Buddhist monk. Oh, Chit Nhat Hanh. Nhat Hanh. Yeah. 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 And uh, how he was saying that uh, the next Buddha won't come as an individual, but it will come as this uh, this group or this this collectiveness. And I briefly mentioned earlier that the the last few nights I've I've been sitting with a, uh, someone who I have a lot of respect for. Uh, I actually did a podcast with him. His name is Amika. Uh, he comes from mm -hmm. the Colombian Amazon, the the Tubu people, and they're they're kind of sadly, in a way, as he would say, exterminated. Like they're their tradition has come to an end. Uh, and so he kind of feels this call, which is very interesting because in his tradition, he said his, his, his ancestors spoke of that, that in a way it was preordained, like he knew it was gonna come to an end and he never believed them, uh, but then it's, it's come to manifest. And he's a remarkable human being because uh, you know his, his, his people have been wiped out through through colonialism, through mining, through exploitation, his family has been killed by the FARC and, you know, the, the, mm, the, the rebel yeah. groups in Colombia. And, you know, it seems like for anyone, he should have kind of the most hate or anger or resentment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
but he, you know, he constantly teaches this idea of, of union and, and, you know, words that divide us, that's not pointing towards the truth. And, and, you know, it's interesting because uh, is a, a huge part of his teaching is this idea of the word and the story and that, even these, you know, medicines, like we always have to honor the story. We have to honor where they come from. If we don't mm -hmm. honor where they're from, they're not medicine in a way that the story is inherent. And before working with any medicine, every single time the story is always told, it's never okay. not told. And I remember sometimes in the beginning, you know, he's, he's telling the story again, or we're like taking Mambe, which is a, a coca powder. And I, okay, here's the story again. <laughs> and I'm like, I think I've heard this 15 times already. <laughs> I hear it every single time. I mean, it must be thousands of times. But I've also really, I've really seen the power in that and to, to kind of acknowledge what you're saying. But in, in one of their stories, again that they speak of that that they knew they were going to be exterminated and and in their tradition they say uh, kind of like what this the 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 guy you mentioned is saying is they have a similar story in their their legends which is that you know that the next buddha isn't an individual in in their tradition they call it the diro amasa and it's the children of the dawn and they say it's the people who are, you know, almost like mestizo. They're, they're not indigenous. They don't come from any specific root, which can be very, very challenging, you know, to, to not have those roots. But that they, they're able to bring, as he would say, the medicine from the four directions, from the four cardinal directions, the medicine from the north, the medicine from the south, the medicine from the east, the medicine from the west. And that none of these traditions are inherently better or superior. They all have their own wisdom. And these huh. Dirdo Amasa, the children of the dawn, are these people who are able to understand these, <clears throat> appreciate them, and create a new earth, a, a new world that, you know, I think so many people are longing for. And so, you know, just to say, you know, for me, I, I think you really embody that spirit of the the Dirdo Amasa, the the <clears throat> the person okay. who can, you know, draw on all of these traditions and and really be able to 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 create this new earth and to uh, to to share that knowledge of, you know, humility and and insight and and really what these I, I think traditions are pointing towards. So. Thank you so much for coming on, Publio. It's always a, it's an honor to talk to you and, and to share in your wisdom. I, I think a lot of people are going to get a lot out of this, and there's certainly a lot of food for thought. And uh, so, so thank you for taking the time. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> and if, if people are interested in, in learning more from you or reaching out to you, working with you, how can they go about doing that? Um, so I think the easiest way is through my website, that is www.publiovalley, with double L, dot com, or Instagram, Publio Yoga, Publio Yoga, yeah. Great. <clears throat> well, I'll put those links up in the show notes, and uh, I wish you all the best, my friend, and uh, hopefully we'll be, we'll be seeing each other again at, at some point, maybe in the Amazon 
Um, also, is there anything you, you want to talk about? Any workshops or anything you'll be running? I, I know you'll be potentially at the temple again. Uh, if you want to talk about that or anything online yes. you're working on. Beautiful, beautiful. Jay, so yeah, thank you for, for opening that up. So I offer one-on-one integration sessions, integration therapy sessions. Um, anyone wanting to join that, just visit my website. There's my calendar there. If you have doubts, you can contact me directly. Uh, I also offer weekly on Wednesdays uh, integration uh, yoga integration sessions uh, that is run by donation. So it's through Zoom. Everyone is welcome to participate. Um, it's open to all levels. And in September, I'm I'm offering at the temple, uh, which I believe to be the first LGBTQ uh, retreat ever uh, in in a in a shamanic context it is it was an old yearning that i had also to create a safe space for people uh, in the lgbtq spectrum you know that from my perspective uh, i being gay myself i see how much wounds and how much shame we carry around it so we are creating together with Tony Hoare, who is a compassionate inquiry facilitator, and Diana Rogers, uh, with the support of Amit Elan as well. Uh, so we are in this group of people creating from our hearts you know, a space that is safe for the LGBTQ community to come and have a deep healing experience in the Amazon with the Shipibos. So I'm excited. Hopefully that will happen in September. So I, it's already on the, the temple's website and everyone is invited. Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful, Publio. <clears throat> well, thank you so much, my friend. I, I wish you well and, uh, and I, I look forward to, to connecting here again soon. And, and thank you for sharing all you've shared. Thank you, Jay, once again. Thank you so much. <laughs> Okay, everybody, that's it. <clears throat> I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Publio. Uh, we got into some really deep topics, uh, and, and I hope you all really got something beneficial and beautiful out of it. As always, if you're able to support the show, uh, Patreon is a really good option. Uh, for as little as a dollar a month, you can sign up, and it gives you some really beautiful benefits, kind of this idea of Aini or reciprocity, uh, things like early access to shows, bonus material, Q&As. Uh, so that's a really big help to me, a really big help to the show. To all the people who have done that, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. There's also the option of directly donating via PayPal. I'll put a link to both of those in the show notes. Um, and then if you're not able to do that, uh, simply subscribing to the show, going on the YouTube channel, subscribing to the show, turning on the notification bell, liking the video. Um, that's a really big help with the algorithms and getting the show out to a bigger audience. Feel free to leave any comments. Uh, usually I, I get back to all of those. Um, and then with the audio version going on Apple Podcasts and leaving a uh, starred rating and a short review and also subscribing to the show. So I think that's it. Uh, I'm not exactly sure of the following order. Uh, I have a number of people coming on still trying to figure out the order, but as always, there should be some really good guests coming on. So thank you all for tuning in. Thank you for the support, and I will see you all in the next episode.
Doom.